A lot of you have probably heard the fable. It's a kid's story, actually, a, a folklore, a story called The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Have you, have you heard that story before? Do you know that story, The Boy Who Cried Wolf? If you know that story uh, and you're joining us online, let us know in chat. Give us a thumbs up that you know that story. Um, and for those of you that don't, let me give you sort of the, the pastor time version uh, recap of that story. A small village where there were a lot of shepherds, a lot of sheep, and there was a young boy looking after the sheep, and he got kind of bored, or he wanted to see everyone, one of the two, and so he decided to pretend that a wolf was attacking the flock of sheep, and he would do that because in that town, what they would do is that when one of the flock was being threatened, or when one flock was being threatened, the whole town rose up, and they'd grab weapons, and noisemakers, and loud things, and they'd go to try and, you know, scare off the animals that were attacking the sheep, so that they could uh, prevent, or at least minimize the damage to, you know, their way of life. And this little boy did that, he cried out, wolf, wolf, and everybody came running, ready to attack, and defend, and realized there's nothing there. So they went home. Little boy made up an excuse. Oh, the wolf left before you got here. And he did it again. You know the story. He did it again and again and again. Gave the same reasons over and over again to the point where the people in the town thought, okay, he's just making this up. He's clearly just fibbing. He's not telling the truth. He's lying. So the next time, he cries out, wolf, we're not going to go. And of course, the next time, you know the story, the next time there was a real wolf. And the little boy panicked and didn't know what to do, and he cried, wolf, wolf, but no one came. You know, there are some in the world that um, say that Easter, the Christian story of the resurrection, is the greatest version of the boy who cried wolf. How can we know for certain? Because we're talking about something that happened so many thousands of years ago. How can we be confident? Like, we have news outlets today live on the scene, and we still can't agree what actually happened live on the scene, even though we can see it for ourselves. It's one of the things that's happening in the war in Ukraine that there's stories being told that are not true. And there's stories that are trying to be told, where we're told, be able to sift the, the wheat and the chaff, so to speak, because some of it might be those who are just trying to drum up in, uh, uh, interest in a particular cause, or they are trying to drum up uh, support for one side or the other by not telling the truth. Be careful what you watch and observe and how you gain that information. So, for over 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. And that, on its own, can we just like admit together that that's a really bold statement, isn't it? That's a really audacious claim. We've said this Easter after Easter, here from this pulpit. It is really rare, as a matter of fact, I can't think of a time that I've been in a funeral service where we were hosting the memorial service and then all of a sudden the deceased sat up in the coffin and said, hey, I'm back. That's rare. And 
although it's not impossible, medical science has told us that those types of things do happen, the type of death that Jesus died and him rising three days later, that's unheard of in world history. Because we hear of stories about how someone who died on an operating table or was declared dead would come back to life, that something would happen, something would change, but it would be moments, not three days later. How can we know for certain that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I think we have to use our intellect a little bit. It's not just blind faith. I think we can use our intellect. Someone's going to make a bold claim, a bold statement, then they better be able to back it up, right? We're sick of people who make promises that they're unable to keep, who make bold assertions that don't come true. We hate those kinds of prognosticators. We're suspicious of uh, government. We're suspicious of entertainment. We're suspicious of athletes. But let's be honest, if we apply that same truth to Jesus, then we need to be cautious in considering what he said, just intellectually, because Jesus made some pretty audacious claims. He claimed to be the Messiah, which is a weird word that's weird for us, it's kind of a church word, but in reality it just means Savior. He claimed to be the Savior. A lot of people thought that that meant he was the savior of his own people, the uh, Jewish nation, but he meant it bigger than that. He meant the whole world. Not only that, he didn't just claim to be the Messiah sent from God. He said he was the Messiah because he was the Son of God. God, very God in the flesh. Now, can, I, can we just be honest with each other? Intellectually speaking, someone on the street came up to you and said, I'm here to save you. What do you do? That's really neat. <laughs> right? And you're backing up. And if someone came up to you and said, I'm the Son of God, God, very God Himself, you don't just back up. You run, right? You're gone. You're absolutely out of there. You want nothing to do with this person. And as a matter of fact, he said it so often that the Jewish religious leaders said, this man's a danger, and he needs to be put to death because of blasphemy. He's leading people astray. Now, Jesus just didn't say he was the Messiah. Jesus didn't just say he was the Son of God. He made one other bold statement, and that was, that he knew the religious leaders would take his life. And he made a promise to his disciples that in three days, he would rise. He made that statement to them. His disciples, I don't think, really understood fully what that meant because he went to his death and they all ran. They weren't calm, they were, weren't peaceful, they were frightened. They went and hid because they were afraid of what would happen to them. So the question that we have to ask is out of all those bold statements, could Jesus really back them up? Could he rise from the dead? Is it possible? Could it be true? 
Well, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, says absolutely true. Can I show you how we can come to that same conclusion this morning? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to John chapter 19. We're going to jump into the middle of the story right near the end of when Jesus had just died and was going to be buried. And what we learn in this is that Jesus was clearly dead. He was hanging on the cross. He had said, it is finished. And with a loud cry, he had given up his spirit. But nobody wanted to take the bodies off of the cross, John tells us, because the Passover was coming. And it was wrong to handle a dead animal at the time of Passover. It would have just been disrespectful of the entire religious ceremony and the religious holiday and the thing that they were celebrating. So, they decided, hey, let's get the, the criminals down. Let's get Jesus down on the cross quickly. And they said, let's break their legs. Because we know if you grew up in church that uh, the crucifixion is actually a way to suffocate publicly. And so by breaking their legs, they couldn't lift themselves up for support. And when they went to do that to Jesus, they discovered he had already died. They even poked a spear in his side. Water came gushing out. And there was no reaction from Jesus. He was clearly dead. And it's here we pick up the story in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation before Passover. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He was clearly dead. There was no argument that he had died. The Roman soldiers saw it, Roman government saw it, religious leaders saw it, and Joseph of Arimathea needed to hide from those religious leaders, so he did it quietly, secretively, and because he wanted to get ready for the religious observances that were coming, they took Jesus' body, and they laid it in the closest tomb they had, it was new, it was in a garden, and they sealed it. But then a problem happened. Jesus went missing. Because we read chapter 20, verse 1, that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. 
he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, he still did not understand from Scripture, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to, to where they were staying. Jesus was missing. And Mary Magdalene didn't know what to do. And Peter didn't know what to do. And John, the disciple who Jesus loved, didn't know what to do either. He believed, but would anyone believe him? Would you believe someone if they came and told you and said, hey, that friend of ours who died three days ago, they're back. They're alive. No, you'd say, no, where, where's the proof? I, I don't believe that. I won't believe that until I see that person for myself, right? Does that make sense? Is that not something someone of intellect, someone with intelligence would say? That would be the best proof we could ever have. And Jesus did just that. See, the reason Jesus was missing was because he was alive. And we read the rest of the story starting in John 20, verse 11. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Leave it to Peter and John to leave a woman who's unconsolable just at the corner of the tomb. And Okay, well, we got to leave. Good job, guys. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. You're in a deep state of grief when you don't recognize your friend who's asking you a question. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, you would think that at the news that Mary Magdalene just gave them, she has seen the Lord, and this is what he said, that he was going to ascend to the Father, that he was your Father. He's going to ascend to his God, and that is your God as well. The disciples would fall in worship, right? 
No, they didn't. Because we read on in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of that week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We can believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead because he appeared to his disciples. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did they make that up? Did they make up a great story of, and Jesus appeared to us and we all believed and bowed down? There's no, there's no way that that's what happened. Why? Because they wrote of their own doubt. And they said, we couldn't believe it at first either. Mary didn't believe until Jesus stood right in front of her and called her name. And even then, it took a while, right? The disciples didn't believe. They saw the empty tomb. They heard Mary's testimony that she had seen the Lord. But what did they do? Lock the doors. They hid because they were sure that Jesus was still dead and the mission was done. And they didn't believe until Jesus stood among them and offered peace, the Holy Spirit, and an invitation to go on mission with Him. And Thomas didn't believe his friends. Here they are, the other ten apostles who are all there, a number of other disciples in that room saying, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas is like, nope, don't care. Until I see this physically for myself, I will not believe. And Jesus obliged him a week later. Thomas didn't believe until Jesus appeared before him like he had done with Mary and the disciples. 
So it would seem like the best proof that Jesus has risen from the dead is for Jesus to stand personally in front of you, right? And to say, look, here I am, I'm risen. Check my hands, check my side, put your fingers there if you'd like, I'm open to that. Like, do whatever you need to do to investigate, but it's clear that I'm alive. The problem is, Jesus is gone. He's left the earth physically, he ascended into heaven and left his disciples. As a matter of fact, scriptures say that um, Jesus gave them a promotion and said, you are now the ones to go on mission for God. My work's done. I did what God asked me to do. I died on the cross. He raised me from the dead. I'm out of here. Your guys are up. Go nuts. Gave him the Holy Spirit and said, go into where? All the world and make disciples of me. So where does that leave us if we don't get to have Jesus physically present in our midst who we can shake hands with and see for ourselves? What does that leave us with? It leaves us with what they saw. And so the question becomes, can we believe what they saw? And the answer is yes. For them, believing... Seeing was believing, right? For them, seeing was believing. And for every person following them, believing was seeing. It flipped on its head. We can believe their testimony because it's reliable and trustworthy. Remember, Jesus said it himself. You believed because you saw me, but there are blessed people who will come after you who believe and yet will not see me personally in the flesh. That is the legacy that these eyewitnesses have left the world. So these guys, these women, all locked in a room, hiding for their lives, would within less than a generation take the gospel around the known world. It would become such a movement that Rome itself started to talk about what these Christians were doing. And in less than three centuries, Rome, all of Rome, would become a Christian nation by decree. It's interesting. I don't think of that's what, that that's what fishermen would do, right? I don't think of fishermen changing the world. I don't know if you've ever been to the docks and looked at fishermen. They don't scream to me as the ones who are influencers on social media and teaching in our colleges and universities. But here they are, this group, this bunch of people, with a clear, singular message that Jesus died, you put him there. But God raised him from the dead, and if you put your faith in him, you will have your sins forgiven, and you will have eternal life. And they changed the world. How did they do that? Because they changed their lives because of what they had seen. That's the proof. That's, that's what we know is a bold truth and a bold statement. When someone says, this is going to radically change your life, and shows you this is how it radically changed mind. That's what they started to do. 
they, they wrote everything down. Look at what uh, John concludes chapter 20 with. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones that I did write, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is a fisherman who decided to become an author. Of all the things to do, of all of the time that he had in the world, he changed everything about his life because he knew other people needed to know what he saw. And he needed to make sure, and others felt the same way. A couple of his compatriots, Matthew and Mark, wrote some. And Luke, a Greek doctor, would come and start to write these things down. A man named Saul, who was killing Christians because he thought they were heretics, would encounter a vision of the risen Christ, and he would completely change his life and write most of the New Testament for us. Because of his encounter of seeing the Lord. The book of John, the gospel of John, is not John's memoirs. Like when anyone writes a book about what they've done in the world, don't they write about them? Isn't that what they do? They write about their experience, about this is what I've done in the world. They'll be humble about it, but they'll say, here's the things, here's the principles by which I've lived my life. I hope they bless you. Instead, he said, no, this is all about Jesus. Let me point you to Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, I won't even put my own name in the book. I'm just going to call myself the one Jesus loved. People can figure that out who I am, but it's all about him. They're not his memoirs. It's not John's biography of his life, it's about Jesus, and he wanted it that way. He changed everything about his life to be about Jesus and be on the mission of Jesus, whether he lived or died. The reason we believe, the reason why Christians believe today is because of their testimony. And they wrote it down and told everyone they could who would listen that I know this is true because this is what I saw. And I'm willing to live my life by that. Remember, um, we don't have time to go into this story, but it's one of my favorite stories after the movement had started going, uh, after Pentecost and um, Peter and some of the other apostles are sharing about Jesus in the temple and they get arrested like Jesus got arrested. Boy, that would bring back some memories. When was the last time Peter in a garden? Peter was in a garden when Jesus got arrested, right? What did he do? First, he tried to lash out and take the ear off the servant of the high priest. And this time, he doesn't. He doesn't fight back. He just gets led in front of the religious rulers, exactly like Jesus was led in front of the religious rulers. And what happened when Jesus was led in front of the religious rulers? They said, you are a blasphemer, and he deserves to be crucified. And Peter doesn't run from that. He doesn't hide from that. He doesn't stay out by the campfire and deny his Lord. Instead, when those religious leaders say, look, you've got to stop talking about this name. This is not healthy for our nation. This is not healthy for our culture. Peter said to the religious leaders of his country, we don't have a choice 
Because when it comes down to what man wants us to do and what God wants us to do, we're going to do what God wants us to do. And they were flogged, they were disciplined, they were beaten, and they were sent home. The best part of that story to me was that when they got home, they prayed. And they didn't pray like I would after I got a beating, right? You know what they prayed for? They didn't pray for protection. They prayed for boldness. That's staggering to me that in the middle of being actually persecuted by the religious leaders of their own people, they prayed for continued boldness because of what they had seen and heard. And they knew others needed to hear about that as well. I mean, look, you may be like me. What do you pray for when you're under pressure? Do you pray for relief or do you pray for opportunity? The difference is that they saw Jesus alive, and that changed everything about the rest of their life. And when you experience something that spectacular, it changes you forever. That's what the disciples did. We know because they saw. We know because they told others what they saw. And what did they see? Not a set of truths. Not a set of ideas. But the living, breathing Jesus who three days before had died on the cross. And if that's true, if they saw the risen Lord and risked life and limb for the rest of their life to tell others about it, and it has changed the world so much that there are millions of believers all around the world today because of what they saw. We can believe that Jesus rose from the dead because of the eyewitness testimony of those who risked their lives. We can know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that what they saw is actually factually true, that Jesus is alive, and that changes everything about our lives. So that leaves us with a decision to make. It's really one of three things. But we need to make a decision and we need to make it today. You need to make a decision, you need to make it today. Three things you can do. The first is this. You have to decide for yourself whether Jesus is alive or not, whether the resurrection is true or not. Because if it is true, it changes everything about the way we live and the way we will live in eternity. Because the resurrection proves that everything Jesus said about himself is true. That he is the savior of the world. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And he is the actual literal son of God on whom we can hang all of our hope. On whom no one else can be saved. It's all about him. 
but we need to investigate. And I want you to know that it's okay to doubt. Do you notice that Jesus, when he showed up to his disciples, he didn't say, you morons, I told you, come on, get it together. I mean, it's been three days, I'm here, it's three days, I'm up out of the grave, let's go, let's get to work. Who am I working with? God, who'd you give me? Man, these guys. No, he says, peace be with you. Jesus is willing to work within your doubt. But he is not letting, he is not willing to let you stay indifferent to the question. He will ask you to make a decision. So I would say, That if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have never given your life to Christ, all I want to do is ask you to do one of two things. And that is to choose to investigate. To continue to come to this church. Or come to any other church that preaches what Jesus said, that models what Jesus said, and that learns together what Jesus said said. Let's face it, there are lots of Christians who would make you think, wow, this Jesus really isn't alive because their lives haven't changed. That's true. But actually, if we think about it, that's the story of every Christian if you talk to them. And the story of the process that Jesus is working out in all of our lives. So can I just encourage you that if you're not a believer, one of the things that you can do is It's okay to doubt, I want you to know that, but make a decision to investigate for yourself. Continue in church, continue to investigate, read the Gospels for yourself to see if it's actually true. See if you can believe what they saw. But maybe, maybe you can make the second decision, which is cast aside that doubt and say, I do believe. I'm in. If those early disciples, those fishermen, that ragtag group of men and women ended up changing the world and were willing to die for what they believed, then I want that. I want to know what they had. I want that peace that Jesus offered them. I want that in my life. Then in a few moments, I'm going to give you a chance to pray where you can surrender your life to Jesus, where you can trust Him alone for your salvation. You can do that. You can investigate. You can choose to believe and surrender. But there's a third option. There's a third decision, and this is for those who have given their lives to Jesus and want to know what the next step is. Can I just recommend that the next step is this? It's go all in, baby. It's go all in. The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything about life. That includes your life. Let it influence your life. At our church, we practice that in four ways. We practice that through giving, like we talked about earlier in the service, that all we have belongs to God. We group up together so that we can help one another be formed and shaped into the image of Christ to become like Him in not just our actions but in our motives, to be transformed and to let others help transform us. We serve. 
We're going to get a chance to serve at Food Link. We're going to talk about that next week. But we serve within our church because we want others to move forward. We serve kids. We serve youth. We lead groups. We get on the worship team. We welcome. We greet. We invite. We do all of that. We give up our time. Because Jesus gave so much for us. And finally, we invite others. We tell God's story through our story and we invite them. We invite them to come. We invite them to participate. Those are the four things that we do here in our church. But can I make a recommendation that if you are a follower of Jesus, may I just ask you, what is your next step to allow all of your life to be surrendered to Him? Because that's what the early disciples did. They were absolutely convinced that he was alive. They saw him, and it changed everything about the direction of their lives for the rest of the, the, rest of the way that they've lived for the rest of their lives. And we need to do the same. That is and are the only three decisions that you can make because of this truth. I get it. It sounds like just an amazing claim that... <laughs> Someone rose from the dead, but it is actually true. For the original disciples, seeing was believing. And with the resurrection, for us, believing is seeing. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, in this moment, um, we ask your Holy Spirit to be in our midst. Just because you are not physically here in a human body does not mean that your spirit is not here. And Lord, we ask that you would you would help all of us to know that your resurrection was real. Not because we wish it was real, not because it's a great thought that it was real, but because of what they saw. They saw you alive, and it changed their lives forever. They wrote down what they saw. They spent time and money and resources to help others know what they had seen so that they could make a decision. And Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to make a decision today. There are those here with us. May you speak to them. If they have never given their lives to you, would you help them, Lord, to make a commitment to investigate to do the research, to find out if the records, the documentation is actually true. But Lord, maybe they're ready. Maybe they do believe. And they want to pray to give their lives to you. Would you help them to pray this prayer? Father, I am a sinner. I am the reason Jesus died. But I believe his death paid for all my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead, that the resurrection is real. And I give my life to Jesus, the living Savior. And I choose to live for him.
Lord, for those who do believe. Would you help us again to not rush past the resurrection and get to our our Easter dinners and family gatherings and egg hunts and all of those fun things. But may this be a time again when we are absolutely convinced that you are alive and may that influence every area of our life. Whatever our next step is that you want us to take, would you help us to take it knowing that you are our living Savior. And the fact that you rose from the dead changes everything about the way we choose to live today and every day. So Lord, help us who have given our lives to you to know what that next step is of surrender. Because this is a message that the entire world needs to know and needs to see in us. Just like we saw in those original disciples. Lord, give us, give us the faith to know for certain. We pray this in Jesus' name, our living Savior, to our living Lord. Amen.